This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Andy Santanello, Senior Military Behavioral Health Psychologist, and got Jenna with me today. Hey, Jenna. How are you doing, Andy? Glad to be here today. I am doing great. Uh, I'm feeling underdressed because we also have two uh, of our, our good friends of CDP, military psychologists, uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Tubman. Hello, Lieutenant Colonel Tubman. Hey. Uh, and we also have Major John Bluestar. So glad to be with you both. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have both of you uh, with me. And especially since I've already asked you to do so much and get in our ACT training program off the ground and you volunteered so much time, I can't believe you're willing to even, like spend even more time with us. It's super you're kind fun. Of like a, yeah, I was going to say that too. Super fun. <laughs> Seems like you were going another direction, John. <laughs> I'm glad you guys got this, this script that uh, super fun is the word of the phrasing we'd like to use when describing working with us. <laughs> so we're really happy to have you guys on the podcast because, well, for lots of reasons. One of the reasons is that we haven't really had a discussion with active duty mental health providers. And so we wanted to, to have you on the podcast to, to chat with you because as we were talking about just before we started to record today, um, there are some things about being an active duty mental health provider that are different and things that are similar to being a non-active duty mental health provider. And I think folks who haven't been in the military have all sorts of myths and misconceptions about that. Would you say that's true? I think so. It, it certainly was true for me before I joined. Um, and then as I s stick around and stay in the military, I notice, um, yeah, perhaps misunderstandings about what we do. Well, and, and as we're kind of getting into that, maybe you guys could just say a little bit about what, what you do, uh, what, you know, what branch you're in and what you actually do in the military. John, you go first. All right. I, I wanted to go first. So thank you for that. Uh, well, so, you pulled yeah, rank I, on him there. Lieutenant it's a direct order. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he, he outranks me. So he has a right of first refusal in all things, you know, it's true. When we have yeah. lunch together. I wait for him to take the first bite. Then I eat, etc. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm I, like, like to point out, I am a major. So that is uh, like a fourth tier up on officers. Oh, four. And I work here at Lackland Air Force Base. So that's in San Antonio, Texas. I am a clinical health psychologist. So while you really can't get away from sort of the general mental health world, I also have the fortunate, fortunate uh, time of my life here at this duty station to also work within a clinical health psychology clinic. So um, very interested in chronic pain and sleep and all, all things that are health related. Also, in addition to that, I get all kind of extra hats. I, I figure it's probably like that for, for all, all you over there at the CDP and probably many other jobs. But in the, in the world of being an, an officer and a mental health worker, in my case, a psychologist in the military, I also get to wear, wear other 
uh, titles like element chief. So that's sort of an administrative managerial duty for, um, for, for the health psychology clinic. And maybe some of the, the funnest things I get to do right now um, is be on faculty for both a doctoral psychology internship and a postdoctoral clinical health psychology fellowship. And so get, I get to do a lot of training and supervision and fun things like that. Yeah, lots of different things. Amazing. Do you have, do you have time to sleep? Being a health psychologist, I get perfect eight hours every night. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, thank, and th- thanks for listening to Diana Dolan on your last uh, episode. So good to go oh, on th- sleep. Thanks for the shout out to uh, Dr. Dolan. John and I have a good amount of overlap in our career trajectories, but I've been in the Air Force just a few few years longer than he um, just hitting the 12 year mark. Uh, my current role is I'm just really excited every time I get to say this, but I'm the training director for the APA accredited internship program here up at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is in the Dayton, Ohio area. John's at one of the other mm. training. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, John is um, down at training base in Lackland. And then there's another training site um, in DC at Joint Base Andrews. Which would that's really the be the building. best. That's the best training site because that's that, right. Yeah. That's where yeah. The, they only take the elite uh, as a, as a it's, former Andrews intern. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, th- I thought you were saying we're at the best training site, but no, I, it took a nasty turn at the end. When you yeah, said someday <laughs> you might get to Andrews. Someday you might get to joint base. Is that sort of like the Carnegie yeah. hall of it really uh, is of, it really of is. military psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm also a health psychologist. That's where I met John, um, and I did the fellowship a little bit later in my career. I was um, first I was in charge of the substance abuse clinic after being a, a general psychologist. I was in charge of the substance abuse clinic. I was in charge of outreach interventions um, and command consultation in a role called the director of psychological health. Then I was a flight commander, so basically in charge of all things mental health at the base I was at in uh, in Spangdalem, Germany, actually. And so in my seventh year of my career, I started a fellowship, um, which uh, went from being, as I mentioned, the primary officer responsible for mental health notes, and then two years, or all things mental health, and then uh, for two years, I wasn't even allowed to sign my own notes. And then uh, moved up here to Ohio to be part of the teaching faculty and just was um, had the opportunity to take on as the training director. So I've been in this role for the last couple of years. Hearing those two trajectories reminds me, you know, why I, I, I loved, I was in the Air Force as well, obviously at the, at the really esteemed internship site and on faculty mm-hmm. at Andrews. But what I, what I love and what I think people don't know about serving as a military mental health provider is the diversity um, in what you're, what you're able to do uh, very early on in your career often too, from both a leadership standpoint, but clinically as well, um, the opportunities that, that it affords you. And I think that's one myth that we can definitely, you know, kind of talk about or or clear up too is, you know, you've mentioned health psychology, Um, you know, we haven't talked about primary care yet, but, you know, big efforts to integrate behavioral health providers into primary care, Um, 
you know, there's, there's forensic opportunities. There's just so many things that you can really get your hands dirty and try out with significant supervision. Um, and I think one of the things that I really valued is an investment in you doing a good job. So it's not like you were there and then, you know, somebody would fire you. Like people wanted you to really learn that skill set, really get good at this thing because they wanted to keep you on. And, um, and we're, we're keeping you on for many years potentially. Uh, and so I think mm-hmm. fr- from a, that's a lot of hats that everybody's wearing, but I feel like there's less burnout in some ways because you're not just doing trauma work 40 hours a week. You're, you know, you're really sort of doing a lot of different types of things that one could do as a behavioral health provider. Yeah. When I, when I was thinking about joining what the sales pitch that was given to me was there are a lot of needs and we need you to be really good. And we're going to train you to be a generalist who can bloom where they're planted. And you're going to get to do really cool stuff. You're going to get to do things that are much different than what your colleagues are. Um, and I found that to be true. And I, I've stuck around because that's what I've gotten more often than not. You know, there's a headaches with, with every job. And, and that's what I try to perpetuate as a, as a TD too, is how do, we, how do we create those kinds of psychologists? It, one of the things you've mentioned, Jenna, a myth of being a military uh, active duty provider and so I'm curious that actually all three of you, we have three military psychologists, well, two active, one former. What are some of the, the myths that you've sort of come across and you've contacted maybe even in, you know, sort of your own experience, uh, things that you thought about before you, you, you joined up and, you know, you've kind of learned about uh, as, as you've you know, been in your roles or, or maybe even things that you've come into contact with when you've been interacting with maybe, you know, folks in the civilian world, things that they just maybe don't get or misconceptions they might have about what it means to be a mental health provider in the military. A personal myth I had was, ah, you know, uh, probably there's a very specific type of personality or like level of like masculine energy that you need to have to be an air force psychologist. And as I was in graduate school, I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I'm that type of, dude, you know, I don't know that I'm like a, you know, GI Joe type of a person. And I don't know where I got that. I I really, I just didn't know very many people in the military, but I just had this, this mentality. Um, And as I was sharing earlier, once I got to know a few psychologists and like, oh, these are, these are mostly pretty normal people that um, at one point were on a similar life trajectory as I am right now, when I was a grad student, um, that, that opened up the door for me to, to learn more. The other two myths, so um, I was at a psychology conference, is actually um, ACBS, a community that I've been a part of that I just really love. Which is uh, the Association for yeah. Contextual Behavioral Science. Yeah, th- thanks, thanks for saying that. Um, well, that's the other thing, the acronyms. There's so many acronyms. We live in the yes. world of acronyms, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was at the Association of Contextual Behavioral Sciences. That, that's also a very long uh, mouthful of an acronym. And I was wearing my uniform because I was there to present and um, it was a military symposium that we did. And um, what that did was it invited a lot of people who have a lot of curiosity to come up and talk about um, what are you doing here, basically. Um, and a question that I got that was certainly an earnest question and, and of curious nature was, what interest would the Air Force have in acceptance and commitment therapy? Hmm. Yeah, that question just spoke a lot to me like, oh, you must not know that my job overlaps probably quite a bit with yours and that I, I sit knee to knee with people who are suffering and who are stuck and 
who have life circumstances that they might not be able to directly affect. And they're trying to figure out how to live a rich and meaningful life, um, which probably is most people who are, who are in, in, in psychotherapy, right? So I, I think that that amount of overlap, you know, and there are certainly, as I mentioned earlier, unique and cool things that we do that are different. But um, to me, the, the Venn diagram has a lot of overlap there that I think perhaps some people don't realize. The other question was, well, do you even use the same ethics code as us? Hmm. <laughs> um, and I was like, of course, yes, I'm, 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 I have an APA accredited internship and training and I'm licensed in Texas and, you know, I'm held to the same professional standards and, you know, the same licensing boards and requirements and all that as, as others. And, and I would say there's even more complexity and organizational demand for us to be really on top of our game when it comes to ethics. We will be of no use if, if we're not. So those are two myths over to you two, I guess. How about you, Major Blue Star? Similar, different? I think a lot of similarities to David. One one of the, the major ones would be I didn't really know any other military psychologists. So I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So in my mind, when, when I hit the door, I imagined it would be almost entirely post-traumatic stress disorder. That would be what I would do every minute of the day. And I would just be a straight one-on-one clinician um, dealing with people who were suffering post-combat. And uh, yeah, there was just such a greater range, um, which was actually in the end refreshing that, you know, there was all kinds of things people were struggling with the sorts of things that anyone in a demanding job anywhere are likely to struggle with, right? Except with the extra responsibility of they also have to be ready for military service. So they're, you know, held to a, to a standard, you know, to, mm-hmm. to uh, Colonel Tubman's point, needing to make sure our, we're being very ethical in their care in terms of informed consent and things. But also, I think another part was I didn't realize how much opportunity there would be to kind of get in front of all the problems from the prevention angle. And that's sort of, you know, had to seek it out and find people who are likewise interested. But one of my first positions when I went to my first assignment at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida, was as the suicide prevention program manager. So it wasn't just, what do we do when someone comes in and they're expressing suicidality, but how can at a community level, we really engage with our clients before their clients or our customers and the military units? And what are the things that we can do to help people find wellness and this this word that's thrown around resilience, but access whatever that means for them. Um, and that's just been incredibly exciting work that's, a, that's available and really needed in the military. It's not just putting out fires, but fire prevention. And, and systemic, you know, a, a lot of times, I think when we think of mental health providers, it's really, you know, one-on-one or, or maybe in a small group but the things you're describing really are more of on a, a much larger level, even even maybe affecting the culture. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a daunting and a really exciting challenge. And fortunately, because we have, we're in military treatment facilities on bases, there's sort of, you know, we sort of have a kind of a laboratory effect in that we have a little bit more understanding and influence, not, maybe not as much as we would want on the environment, um, but it's it's there in unique ways, which are fascinating. That is really fascinating. I guess I really hadn't thought about, you know, those applications of some, maybe there's some unique opportunities to do things on that level that you might, you might not come across in other contexts, for sure. 
I was thinking also just um, the opportunity to collaborate and consult. And, um, you know, I think there's all these negatives, you know, myths about being in a system and, um, you know, the man and, and a bureaucracy, but there's opportunity there that I think, um, you know, when we consult, you know, I'm, I'm one of our PE consultants. Um, and so I consult a lot with providers who are really frustrated because they don't have access, um, ready access to other care providers or other, you know, sort of groups and resources that could augment what they're doing with their client. And I think in the military, you, you start to take that for granted because um, you can send somebody to the health and wellness center and have them do a stress management class while you're also doing this other treatment with them or, you know, hook their family member into something, um, you know, sit on, um, you know, sit on working groups to sort of better address, uh, you know, other prevention type problems. And I think, um, sort of those positive parts uh, get get overlooked sometimes as well. And I think the other myth I had um, probably going in was that somehow the providers and the training that people got maybe was sort of suboptimal. And, it, and I was just blown away by sort of, again, how cutting edge, how focused the organization was on making sure that their providers were trained in the latest evidence informed evidence-based treatments and, um, you know, the money that was put into bringing folks in to provide training and consultation uh, and really, really sharp, you know, sharp folks, especially at Andrews, just, you know, throwing that out there one more time. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I can add into the sharp folks comment, I also thought that the only way to get access to active duty service members to treat them would be to join the service. So I kind of like in my mind, that was the only way I had to commission and put on the uniform. But it turns out that we have thousands and thousands of uh, civilian social workers, psychologists, paraprofessionals, <laughs> and, and, they're, and, and actually they're really good jobs and we really need them. So as much as it's important to Colonel Tubman and I to be recruiting social workers and psychologists and all these folks to be active duty, there's also just tons of civilian positions that we need those sharp folks in. And unfortunately, we have tons of them already and, and just need more. You wore that uniform all those years and you didn't even have to. I mean, geez. Uh, Jenna, you know, you mentioned sharp folks and getting really great training. And I know uh, both of our guests today have a hand in training and have actually designed some pretty incredible I think pretty incredible training opportunities uh, in, in lots of different EVPs. MI, I think you're both MI trainers. Um, you're both mm -hmm. ACT trainers. And the follow on that you've sort of created uh, the in house consultation programs that you've guys got is just really incredible. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to, to talk a little bit about what, what it was like to maybe craft those experiences for your trainees. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak kind of broadly about training in the Air Force um, and then. John's program does have some nuances that are different than ours, but um, all three training sites, not just something we say, but, you know, they all are um, really intensive involved and, um, you know, I, I just think high quality, you know, of course, APA accredited training programs. The, the main rotations that you, you tend to get is probably folks spend the most amount of time doing general mental health work. And secondarily, they'll, all three training sites offer a clinical health psychology rotation. Um, which is basically because of this reality that many of the people that we stand to help aren't people who necessarily have mental health conditions, but they might have other lifestyle and behavioral factors that, um, um, you know, like perhaps chronic pain or difficulties with weight management or um, 
things like diet and exercise that we might um, stand to have an influence over both on the individual level as well as um, in preventive efforts. So um, the clinical health psychology. And then also there's neuropsychology rotations um, that are of varying lengths. All three sites also do, as Jenna mentioned earlier, primary care behavioral health. So ways of acting within an, a primary care clinic, doing brief, usually solution-focused functional assessments where you're giving uh, conceptualizations and evidence-based interventions in a targeted way like your PCM would. So that's the basic structure. And then within that, we have this challenge of we have a year not just to make you a really good psychologist, but also how do you how do you do with doing preventive health initiatives and consulting commanders? And um, then how do you function as a leader? Because you're also an officer in the military. And as soon as you get to your new base, they're going to be expecting you to be in charge of something. So that's a lot of demand. And then John and I are also very passionate about uh, and motivational interviewing and um, some population health-based things and ways of doing embedded mental health care. So we have these little tracks within our programs to um, to expose people and, and hopefully spark some enthusiasm in those areas while we're also juggling, you know, these, these other challenging uh, training objectives. It, just the incredible amount of information and skill that someone needs to be able to accumulate in such a short amount of time must be really challenging for trainees, but also for, you know, for people like you who are crafting those training opportunities, because you still have plenty of other hats to, to wear too. So what, what has that been like to try to juggle all of those things? Yeah. You know, at different points in my career, I would answer that question differently. And something that I, I, I bring, and this is consistent with conversations we've had that are act aligned, right. But, um, sometimes people are drawn to the military because of financial benefits and resources. And, you know, I'll admit that was a, a major drawing factor for me. And um, it didn't take me long to realize if that's my only reason for doing what we're doing, I'm going to be really burnt out and miserable and I need to get out very quickly um, right. Right. because it's not some secret that we, we pay more and nobody has figured this out. And it's a secret, you know, like, let's just um, keep it to ourselves. Like it's, it's because there's great responsibility and um, there are demands on, on you. And, um, you know, you are expected not just to be a, a system follower, but you're expected to hopefully improve and create and develop this system that we're part of. Um, and you get paid accordingly, uh, uh, but that's not by accident. So as I've as I've developed in my career and taken on different roles and put on rank, oh boy, even within the last couple of years of my life, I guess it's just been made more and more real to me that being connected with who we're serving and why the work we do matters. Um, I think that that's what keeps me burnt out I, or from being burnt out. I love the variety of what we get to do, but I will be spread thin if I'm just trying to do everything I can, I can reach for. Um, so having opportunities to center myself and like, what really matters? What do I care about? Um, and being intentional about that. Yeah, definitely important to be able to keep those 
those values right in front of you to guide what you're doing for sure. Mm-hmm. It's funny we're talking about uh, you know some of the myths that maybe civilians might might have or c- civilian providers mm-hmm. might have when it comes to military psychology. And uh, it's going to go ahead and you know out myself as maybe being a not the most culturally military culturally competent psychologist. I think I've gotten a little bit better, but I remember doing my first training for CBP. Uh, at a uh, military base, I won't say which one, and it was for 80 military psychologists. And I had all these irrational thoughts about what it was going to be like. So Mm -hmm. uh, first was, are are they going to be able to laugh at my jokes? Not that I have good jokes, but like, you know, are they going to be able to do that? Where, you know, was I going to have to be, you know, super serious the whole time? It's sort of like getting to what you were saying earlier about you know, the assumption that, that, or maybe the misconception that people in uniform aren't human beings and not that it went that far for me, but just, you know, some of the things that seemed just sort of silly, all these ideas that were kind of in my head. And so, um, when we're thinking about military psychology and military psychologists and military mental health providers, um, there is a cultural competency aspect to it. And so, what are some of the things that you've kind of maybe worked into your, your training programs or maybe even just your interactions with, with non-military providers that you found to be sort of helpful in getting that message across? That there are some things about being a military mental health provider that um, we might have myths about or misconceptions about. Well, we the, the thing that's coming to mind right now is we try to really instill the importance of truly doing a biopsychosocial assessment of whatever the person's walking into the room with, whatever problem and and goals they might have, where we're understanding physiological contributions, the thoughts, the emotions, the behaviors, and then also how those factors interact with the environment and, and who they're around and uh, what their upbringing was like, socioeconomic factors, adversity factors. Because just like anything, you know, there's, you know, what do they say? Every, um, oh, every road has two ditches, I think is possible that me as a military member might assume that I know some things about the military member sitting across from me because I'm wearing a uniform and be totally wrong and totally off and really just be stereotyping that person and miss out on truly understanding how they came about having the problems that they're having because I'm over identifying. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it's also possible for me to maybe not appreciate that there are some similarities, you know, of, of, of perhaps background and culture and context that we have. So, you know, we, we, we give our residents the opportunity to both in their notes, but then also in some of our training uh, activities to do that, to, to really show us like, yeah, we're interested, I guess, in what diagnostic formulation you might have, but, um, how are you conceptualizing the development and maintenance of whatever problem they have considering biopsychosocial factors? And then what does that point to in terms of what might be the evidence-based tools we have to help them alleviate that issue and, and move toward whatever it is that they're hoping to get out of therapy? So, so I know that's not a military specific answer. That's to me, that's how you would hopefully, or at least at least where I'm at right now in my development as a psychologist, how I would encourage people to be culturally curious 
in any context. And it really, really matters in the military because there's all sorts of maybe shared identities, but then also an incredible amount of diversity with, with who we're working with. And boy, if you miss that, you're, you're in trouble. Kind of one of the key things that we tend to foot stomp when we do military culture training is if you leave with nothing else, it's ask, don't assume. Um, Because, uh, you know, I think people would love to be taught a set of rules or if I learn these acronyms and I know these ranks and I learn these things, then I'm culturally competent. But it's, Mm. you know, each individual views their world through the lens of military culture very differently. Um, And so really sort of taking the time to ask some questions about that and the influence it has or hasn't had on how yep. they see the world and themselves. Um, right now, I, we're doing consultation with new integrated behavioral health consultants, those providers that are, a lot of them are civilians working in primary care, which is new, but also working in military primary care, which is really new. Um, and our cons- consultation is primarily on military culture. So how, how, you know, in this visit that you had with this with this client, this patient, um, were there any parts of their presentation or things that were going on with them that maybe were influenced by military culture? You know, this tendency to say, you know, what do you, how do you think, feel about that treatment plan? Yes, ma'am. That sounds fine. Um, so again, mm-hmm. sort of that, that social order piece um, can get in the way of, of patients really questioning treatments or, um, you know, how acceptable that, that, that treatment plan might be to them. And so making sure that you're watching out for some of those pitfalls um, and, and asking questions. So I love that. Um, and I think, you know, again, for our civilian listeners, we, we do a lot of training on military culture um, and, you know, maybe we'll link some resources in the show notes. Um, right. The other thing I was going to say, um, I know you talked about going to a conference. I think um, military providers, you know, going to conferences and engaging in um, special interest groups or being part of planning committees, uh, sort of bridging that gap between military mental health and civilian mental health. And, and again, kind of get, get to know a military provider uh, that way. So if you see somebody at a conference, um, you know, again, engage with them just as you would anybody else at that conference and maybe learn a little bit about what it's like to be, and I don't mean to be going into actionable intel, but um, I think, you know, representation on committees and things like that is a great way to integrate, you know, some of those things. Yeah, it, um, we, we, a really cool thing, I just, I've been describing it this way lately, but being, being an Air Force psychologist, it's somewhere between a job and your family. It's not really your family, but it's also more than a job. You get you. I'm in a job right now where I wasn't really hired to be here. I was told I'm going here. Nobody interviewed me and said, "Yeah, we like you. We want you to be part of this organization." And we want, you know, um, they just got me, kind of like you just get your parents or you get your siblings or you get your your kids, right? Um, and um, I love the the tight knit the tight knitness of that. Uh, but also just like anything, it is a bubble that we can all kind of unknowingly go along and kind of drift away from other ways of thinking about things. So Jenna, your point about requiring yourself to be part of non-military communities as a, as a uniform wearing psychologist, I think it's essential. And I just, I benefit so much the wonderful things that I get to do by listening to differences in other people. I'm also reminded that like 
hey, there's parts of my job that suck. There's parts of other people's job that suck too. And then I'm also sometimes challenged on ethical dilemmas that I have. And when somebody who's a civilian goes, wait, you, you spoke with that person's commander? What is that all about? Why would you ever do that? And I have to go, boy, what is, why did I do that? Oh, that's so important and so helpful and uh, just so beneficial for me as a psychologist. And I also think it is beneficial for, for those we're interacting with to understand what, what we do. Well, Jenna mentioned actionable intel. And so we're just about at that time. And so I'm going to put uh, Major Blue Star on the spot. So, uh, so actionable intel. Yeah. So uh, one, one thing I would say, especially if you treat within your practice, military service members or veterans or even their family members within your personal practice, sort of as a, as a uh, ongoing, ongoing solicitation of mutual conversations and collaborations when conferences and otherwise get involved in special interest groups. For example, we have the, of course, the Act for Military uh, within the Association of Contextual Behavioral, and they, they have a, a special interest group for military and veterans. And so just lots of opportunities. If, if, you, if you ever treat someone who, who, is, who has been in or is in military service, there's lots of avenues to get consultation, learn more about our culture. Um, and, and the hope would be that that would be to the, to the grand benefit to the people in front of you who, are, who exist in a very unique context where a lot of the stressors that they experience are j- just are, are different than you'd see anywhere, anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. You know, getting involved with special interest groups that have, you know, a military theme or about, you know, working with folks in the military. It's a great opportunity for, you know, people who are in the civilian world to, to meet and interact with providers who are in that world and to, to make friends with them. You know, that's how, how, how I met the both of you guys through the uh, Act for Military SIG. And we, we got to do some really cool stuff together. So that's great actionable intel. How about you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel? Yeah, I think if you Google Air Force Force Psychologist website, and that's a huge, uh, you'll find a lot of interesting stuff on there, but any one of us training directors, and I'm, I'm just mentioning us because that's that's a place you could find our contact info just would love to be contacted by people who want to learn more about air force psychology want to learn um even not necessarily interested in terms or whatever um so google that and reach out to what it was like like, and get to know you as part of our network um and so what uh, what was that again google air force psychologist is that what you're suggesting yeah reach out to a training director yeah, the Society of Air Force Psychologists, and, I, and I'm, I'm mentioning that specifically because I remember feeling like before I was in the military, feeling like I don't know any military psychologists, and I feel like it'd be super weird to reach out to them. Hmm. It would not be super weird. We would love it. Please do it, and we love talking about what we do and sharing about it and being excited about it. So, give us that chance, and probably be mutually beneficial. I really underscore that. I think you, you'd be hard pressed to find a military behavioral health provider who doesn't want to talk about what it's like <laughs> to be a military behavioral health care provider. Like it's uh, so, you know, you meet somebody at a conference or if you're sitting on the metro next to somebody and they, you know, they they're, have a PowerPoint open that looks like they're a behavioral health psychologist, like just just reach out and talk. 
We will link in the show notes our military culture course. That's one place to get started if you don't know much about the military, not necessarily about you know, military mental health, but just culture in general. Um, and I'm just going to say it again, ask, don't assume. I think Love respectful it. curiosity is the best way to go. Well, I want to thank all of you for being uh, on the podcast, especially you, Jenna. I, you know, one of the things working with you, I forget about is that you're a former military psychologist. Um, and I also want to thank- Because I'm so normal. You're super normal. <laughs> <laughs> super normal. <laughs> <laughs> and and definitely a special thanks to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tubman and Major Blue Star. I know you guys are incredibly busy you're doing really, really important work. And to make the time to chat with us is just uh, incredible. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for the chance. It's fun. Oh, yeah. Wonderful experience. Thank you so much, Andy. Jenna. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to Practical for Your Practice. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.